I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast. I am Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. We like to call both of those Tom. And I'm here today with my good friend and coworker, Mr. Sean Latimer. Hello, everyone. Happy to be here. And today we're going to be talking about the confounding of compounding. And I started this article with a lot of personal stories. So you're going to learn a lot more about... Did you learn a lot more about me today, Sean? Well, I have an unfair advantage. I've known you for, what, 15 years? You did, but before we started the podcast, you said, you really did this? Uh, I did learn something new, but I guess it didn't really surprise me. Oh, it, it, it sounds was, like something you would do. It was, it was fitting with my character. <laughs> you read this and you're like, I know Trevor's really annoying. So some of the stuff you wrote about his marriage, that makes sense. And uh, this part makes sense as well. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but, you know, we won't really get into your tidbits into this. <laughs> oh, you're not going to put me on blast on this <laughs> no, podcast that, right that now? No, that wouldn't be fair. Yeah, maybe enough. Maybe we'll invite Nicole on one time and she can put you on blast. Oh, uh, there you go. So as Sean's alluding to, my wife is Nicole and I started this article Kind of entering this idea of double dates. Have you been on, you and your wife go on a lot of double dates? Not a lot, but we've definitely been on them. And is it just me? Like when you go on a double date with a, I'm calling it like a new couple, a couple you've never gone on before. Doesn't it seem like wash, rinse and repeat? Like the same stories that you tell, the same questions that you ask. Is it just me or no? No, that's true. And it, it is always interesting because your first impression of someone maybe at church or at work, you, you might think, you know, oh, he talks all the time in the office. He must be the the, the instigator must, or the yeah. jokester. And then you go out and th- their partner is actually louder or, or more belligerent. You're like, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, and that's what I talked about in the article at the starter is that like you learn a lot about somebody when you see them in context of when they're with their spouse. And it's funny when individually they're different because you're like, wait, why are you why are you adjusting your right. behavior? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is true. Or you, you kind of wonder, like, how, how does this even work? How do they fit together? Yeah. And I, I talked about on these double dates, you kind of start to learn, like, who's the talker? Who's really good at asking questions? Uh, who's the good listener? Who's the person that gets super distracted? And a funny little joke I put in there, maybe it was only funny to me, but I said, like, who loves the pets and who takes care of the I, pets? Because it's, not, it's not the same person. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt like that was a little jab, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not so much. I, we both love uh, pets. But yeah, it seems like sometimes in the family, my wife talked, or Nicole talked about getting a dog. And I'm like, absolutely. But you're going to take care of the dog one. 100%. And then I think the tone changed a little bit. I think that's like classic dad line where you go, I'm not going to take care of it. You guys do everything. And then three weeks later, they're the one walking the dog and picking up the poop. And that's just how it works. Yeah. And I mean, so our listeners know the whole reason we're, we're talking about this idea of double dates or whatever is I let off with this story. Because when you go on a double date, you're going to share these different stories that are unique to you and that will make the the table laugh and and stuff that happened during your dating relationship or when you're engaged. So my funny story, my go-to, I have a a couple of them, but one of the go-tos was when Nicole and I were dating, I was describing to her, we were at her parents' house watching TV and I was talking to her about saving and I was so excited about a Roth IRA. So I was explaining to her, if you put money in this Roth IRA, like it's never taxable again and like the benefits of compounding growth. And, you know, I I remember learning in high school, if you start at a younger age, then it makes that much of a difference. And and all those illustrations were based on starting at the age 25. And that's about how old Nicole was when we got married. Yeah, she was like 24, 25. So I was like really trying to push like, 
yeah, I'm talking about this, but like, you should really do a Roth IRA. And she's like, oh, okay, yeah, it sounds good. Like, let's talk about something else. But she's like, yeah, I got a couple thousand dollars. I'll put it into that account. And I was like, jaw dropped. You're like, wait, I told you you could put in 5,500. Yeah, I was like so confused. I'm like, oh, yeah, like you miss- maybe you misheard me. I think you said you put like a couple thousand. Like, you can put 5,500. And then she's like, well, I need this extra money. It's like my emergency money or whatever. And then, like, we went back and forth, and finally, I just put $3,500 into my girlfriend's Roth IRA because I was such a big believer that she needed to start now because she <laughs> needed that 30 years of compounding. Yeah, that, that was the, the one thing I learned that I didn't know that story. And my first question was, wait, before you were married? <laughs> yeah, and I look back at it now, and I'm like, man, when you know, you know, I must have knew that I was going to marry her um, or I was uh, willing to... Uh, be charitably investing $3,500. In yeah. But I guess it worked out. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, maybe that's what pushed her over the edge and like, yeah, he's a keeper. Yeah, you sealed the deal with yeah. three grand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> $3,500. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's a funny story, but, um, and I, I, t- I transitioned or pivot in the article, it was less about the Roth IRA. Like that wasn't my infatuation. It was with this idea of compounding. Like in high school, your senior year, did you same thing for you? I was in Northern California for high school. Do you guys do the same thing? Yeah, it's like a civics economics class where they have to split it up. Yeah, so half the year you're in like government and Mm -hmm. then the other half is econ. I made a joke, not a joke, but it's like true. Like my teacher was the basketball coach because I feel like all the coaches, that's what job they wanted. They wanted the the econ government class to teach. Yeah, that's true. My, I think my coach was the history teacher. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. And I remember in that class, there was this... Uh, they, did you get this... Uh, how do I want to describe it? Like a table. And it was... There was two columns. And it, one column was saying somebody starts saving at the age of 25 and they do it for like 15 years and they get like a 6% return. The other person starts at 40 and does it for like 30 years with that same return. And the person that started at 25 actually has more money. Yeah, it is amazing when you see that even though people could be saving, you know, three, four, five times as much later in life for a longer amount of time, they could still end up with less money. Uh, I I didn't see this chart, but uh, I did see a similar chart where it showed what $1 invested in different years. If you started in like 1960 and uh, you used, whether it was a, a handful of companies or index and what that $1 would grow into after 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And it was pretty amazing to see that. And uh, I think that that kind of changed my perspective then at, you know, what investing really meant. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I pulled the graphic that we put in the article. You go to the blog and you can see it from a Vanguard article that I read. And that same chart you're talking about was the other illustration of this. So for the podcast listeners, you don't have the graphic in front of you. What it basically is saying is it has somebody that is contributing. They're getting a 6% return and they're contributing $10,000 per year. And it's comparing somebody that starts at 25 and saves for 15 years. So from 25 to 40, they add $10,000 a year and just a linear return of 6%. Then the other person starts at 35, but they save till 65. So they're saving, that's twice as long, right? The first person saving for 15 years at 10,000 a year. The second person is saving for 30 years at 10,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So when you compare contributions, one person, the total dollars is 150,000. The other person's putting 300,000. What's the difference? One person is starting at 25 and the other person is starting at 35. So what's the outcome? Well, one person ends up saving over $1 million because of all those years of compounding, while the other person only gets to like 840000 
a lot of numbers, really hard to kind of digest that on the podcast. Go look at the chart. But the whole point is more years of compounding makes such an astronomical difference. It's true. And this chart's very telling too, because I feel like I see this scenario a lot. Um, it reminds me when people that are waiting to have kids, for example, they say that, you know, I want to make sure that all my finances are in order and everything's comfortable and I'm ready to go. Uh, then I'll have kids. And what they don't realize is you never really feel ready to have kids. Well, it's kind of the same thing with saving. I, I've noticed that people will say, you know, through their 20s or 30s, oh, I'm going to wait till I'm in my peak earning years, and then I'll have more extra income to save. But this chart illustrates that that's not necessarily the best way to do it. Yeah, the longer you defer, the less time it's like allowing to marinate or whatever words you want to use. Let me ask you a question. So before we kind of move on, we started off with double dates and personalities. Do you see a correlation in personalities when it comes to clients or people you're helping with financial plans on their financial habits? Yes, that's a good question. So is there a common trait amongst successful investors? Is that what you're saying? No, it, it made me think of it when you were bringing up, you know, different personalities and tidbits that maybe if they're more outgoing, they aren't as good saving or, or maybe if they're a little bit more reserved, they do a better job and their balance sheet's healthier. Do, do you see any correlation like that? That's a good question. I think why well, do you see this correlation? It's not really answering your question. But I see this correlation that people that are, I don't want to use the word frugal, but people that pay attention, people that are aware of what they spend, and they're kind of like measuring, always measuring the utility of it. Like, hey, we're going to go on this vacation, and we're going to spend $10,000. Is it worth it? Um, and they're really good at spending their money where they derive the most joy or the most interest out of it. And they're not just like haphazardly always spending. Mm -hmm. Usually people that have that awareness, I don't want to go as far to say frugality, but there is some level of frugality there. They usually have long-term financial success because they're aware of all of these things. Then there's another type of person that just wants to kind of be blind to all of those things and hopes for the best. I usually don't see a lot of success in that because there's not planning involved. It's kind of like close your eyes, work as hard as you can, uh, whatever's left over gets end up in the savings account. And then after 20 or 30 years, take a look at your bank account and hopefully you're where you needed to be. So after seeing all of that, the commentary is planning. And, and that, that's actually a really good point. It kind of segues into the, the chart because the first person you talked about that's aware and planning, they know that, that those monies being saved at a younger age will make a larger difference in the future, where the other person puts their head down, works hard, maybe saves a lot in different ways, and then after the fact goes, oh, this would be more efficient in this account or this type of contribution. You know what the bad thing about that is, now that I think about it, is sometimes the person that puts their head down and kind of wants to put the blinders on they're like embarrassed about uh, their income or they think that they'll never make it. So they actually don't even want to look at it because it causes them stress. But I've read so many stories about this janitor that passes away with like a three to $5 million estate that he leaves to some charity or the church and nobody ever knew that he had that wealth. Why? It's because he started saving a little bit at a very young age, and he built that discipline of always saving. Like I've written an article in the past about this, is people really sell short the idea of contributions. In in your early years, what you save is the lion's share of your account. 
Compounding works in the long run when you start to get to sizable nest eggs where the returns that you could earn would be greater than what you could actually contribute. But in order to get the nest egg to that size, you have to save for a long time. Right. And we've talked about it in the past too, where sometimes, you know, in our younger years or newer clients, they're really focused on returns and they are comparing, well, you know, so-and-so got an 8% return and I had a 6% return. Should I change things? And the the one thing that you always point out is, well, let's look at your contributions. You know, if you have a $100,000 account and you're putting away $10,000 a year, that's going to move the account more than if the returns were 6 or 7%. And yeah. uh, I, I think you're right. It makes a big difference. Let's say the max 401k contribution is nineteen dollars or $20,000 and you have $100,000 in your 401k. You want to get a 20% growth? Add 20,000. Yeah. You know what I mean? Then you add 20,000 and you get a 10 or 12% return and both of those things are working for you. That's how compounding works. Yep. Um, and, and if you want to, the fun fact I put in here, and it should stop anybody in their tracks, is let's talk about who, if you went on the street right now and you said, who's the wealthiest man in the world or who's the best investor of all time, there's a common answer you're going to get and it's going to get Warren Buffett. Yeah. So let's look at Warren Buffett. When did Warren Buffett become a billionaire? Well, I learned this in your article. It was when he was 50. Yeah, he wasn't a billionaire until he was 50. Now, you could argue something against me is, well, he was 50 40 years ago. So being a billionaire 40 years ago was different than being a billionaire today, which is absolutely true. But if you want to see the power of compounding, today Warren Buffett, I think, is 90 years old. So he has built 99% of his wealth. I think it's 99.7% of his wealth from 50 years old to 90 years old. It's amazing. And why? Because he, if you look at the Berkshire Hathaway track record, he's compounding, I don't know, 15 or 20%, but he's doing that for 40 years. Like, I can't even fathom how much of an impact that has. And and what I talked about in the article at one point is compounding has really two variables that make it happen. It's returns and it's time. Mm -hmm. But what people underappreciate is time. And Warren Buffett is where he's at because... He's been doing this. I think you can read biography about him. I think it says that he bought his first stock when he was like 12 years old. So as funny as this might sound, he's been compounding for 80 years. Another interesting thing is of those two levers, there's really only one you can control. And what is it? It's time. Yeah. It's up and not returns. Yeah. What, you know, we, we had a common career path in, in, in where we used to work even before we were in finance. And I remember one of our bosses used to tell us, control the controllables. And that always stuck with me is like, hey, you want to get stressed out or anxious about something? Control the controllables. What can you control? You can control what you contribute. You can control that you start that now rather than later. Because tomorrow absolutely never comes. True. And I think it ties into also staying invested too. I think that's a part of that time piece because, um, you know, especially as in volatile markets, you hear more about people uh, almost trying to get cute with their portfolio where they're going to try and time the election or time this event. And uh, not timing as in the time we're talking about, but timing like go out of the market and then go back in. And by missing out on those returns that are out of your control anyways, it can really impact you negatively. Yeah, because that equation really depends on staying invested. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in those times of distress, if you're a dividend investor, what happens? You're getting paid along the way. Getting paid along the way is one thing, but what's the other thing? You're, the, Re- you're reinvesting into more shares at, lower, at a lower price per share. Exactly. So you have to find the silver lining and you have to motivate yourself to stay invested. And 
go ahead and use Warren Buffett as that example. That's what 90 years of compounding looks like. It makes you one of the richest men in the world. And then I I transition here a, a little bit kind of to share the quote that you have to share if you're talking about compounding. And this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, but it makes me laugh. So I'm going to talk about it. And it's this quote that says, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. And I laugh about that because it's always credited as that something Albert Einstein said. But now where you can like Google everything, everything is researched and fact checked and whatever. Like there's this whole movement right now of are quotes attributed to the right person. So now, like, anytime I say a quote, I say supposedly. Like, supposedly (laughs) Einstein said this because I read all these articles that basically say Mark Twain never said any of these things. (laughs) Einstein never said any of these things. Like, those people are remembered as being kind of witty or have a lot of wisdom. So we've redacted history and just assigned everything cute and fancy to them. Well, they also probably had just had a bigger soapbox and they heard it from their barber or a friend and they're like that's pretty good i'm gonna tell everyone that <laughs> yeah that that's it that's a good point too but i mean this whole article is really just about the power of compounding this article is very personal to me right i'm telling you about uh, my marriage and all these different things i had to end with something that is absolutely trevor and i love to laugh so you have to go on the blog and watch this video the the kind of last few paragraphs i'm writing about this idea that um in life We understand why time is such an important component of a lot of facets of life. Let's say like when we cook, we know great food takes time to prepare. When we are gardening or we're planting seeds, we know that in order to harvest that in the future, it takes time to grow. And I think in our heart of hearts, we know that investing is the same thing that we're not going to be billionaires or millionaires overnight, that that also takes time. But we're in an instant gratification culture. So a lot of that gets thrown out the window. And the analogy that I made is that we watch a lot. At least I do. I watch a lot of cooking shows. Do do you watch any? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. I I can relate, though, because I I have a smoker at home. And, you know, some of the best recipes can take 12 hours. And I, I did think of that when you brought up the cooking show in the article that No one would want to sit around for 12 hours and watch a show, but they like to see the end result. Yeah, it's interesting. So I do like to cook as you like uh, barbecuing and things like that. But I I think it's beyond me. A lot of people like to watch cooking shows because if you look at um, the shows rated on Netflix, like in the top 10, there's a couple things like Chef's Table or Barbecued or different things like that. And the point that you made is kind of the point I made in the article is that when you watch one of those shows – you're not going to watch a 12-hour show. No. You know, in reality, it's going to take 12 hours, but you want to be entertained. So what do you want to see? You want to see the ingredients. You want to see the preparation. But you want to hope that they have a finished product that they're going to be able to show off because you don't want to wait the 12 hours to see it. And I'm kind of basically arguing that investing is the exact same thing. We want to talk about the ingredients. We want to talk about the stocks, the hedge funds, the strategies, all these different things. But what I'm saying is those things only matter if you give them time to play out the returns that you're expecting from them. Like we go to the national forest to observe the trees and and, and everything that is beautiful about it. But if I give you a handful of seeds, you're not going to sit there in awe. True. So uh, the funny video that I put on that I think is going like viral, I guess the right word is on on YouTube, is a grandma cooking with her uh, grandson, who I'm guessing is like a toddler. Uh, I I got a two-year-old. How old is your your youngest? He's almost three. He's almost three. He's about the same age. Yeah, it looks about the same age. So if you watch this video, 
to me, it's hilarious. And like I said, it's a personal article, so we had to end with laughing. Um, Grandma's trying to teach him how to cook, and all he can do, or bake, I guess is the right word, is he wants to reach in the pot and grab the stick of butter and take a bite out of it or grab the sugar and, like, lick it. And it just, like, reminded me of investors. It's like... uh that's you like sometimes that's me sometimes like i just want to jump in and like mess with the ingredients of my portfolio and i want to taste it and change it and whatever and it's like no like you're baking cookies like this is going to be a one hour process you have to wait an hour Mm -hmm. every time i heard you say time it it reminds me of patience and i I think that that's the one thing that i talk to clients probably the most is it, it does take patience you have to be bold you have to wait the time that it takes Yeah, you kind of have to be a contrarian. Like everybody wants to talk about the sky is falling sometimes and you have to say like, hey, I want to be patient. And and I talked about this in an article, but that's absolutely why this is not, why is compounding one of the most important, actually, let me say that. Why is compounding the most important factor in investing? Yet you go watch any sort of financial news, you're not going to hear about it at all. never talked about. Yeah, because patience isn't sexy. No, not at all. Like, if, they, if they had a TV show that was called Set It and Forget It, and all they talked about is how not to overthink anything or change anything, it wouldn't exist because no one would watch it. Yeah. And when you go talk to somebody on the street and you say, why is Warren Buffett the best investor of all time? You're going to get answers like he's super smart. He gets inside information on deals. And I'm going to say some of those things are true, but his wealth is so much dependent on compounding. Mm-hmm. The fact that he's done it for 80 years and when you talk about that common trait i think hbo has a documentary on buffett which is pretty fun to watch and you watch him get in his car the 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 absolutely the car that you wouldn't think that he has um based on the money that he has you watch him drive to mcdonald's and he buys his normal like breakfast sandwich and coffee and he pays with change he has like a certain amount of change he keeps in his car and he counts it. It's like a dollar twenty-five, and he has this routine. Warren Buffett is frugal, yeah. right? He lives frugal. It comes out in the way that he does his business deals. And if you add making strong income plus frugality over a long time period, everybody's going to be wealthy. They might not be the richest man in the world, but everybody's going to have significant wealth when they add those three attributes together. So I'm glad we're doing it on this podcast. I'm glad it was written about in this article. You need to know that one of the biggest factors in your success is going to be compounding. That's right. And that's all I got for you today. Any last words for our listeners? Nope. Have a great weekend. And we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts Thoughts on on money. Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. 
The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.